Hey, everybody. Welcome to the EquipCast. My name is Jim Jansen, and uh, I am your host. I'm excited to introduce Mr. Matt Reggetts uh, to you today. Matt is a coach with the Divine Renovation Network. Matt and I met a few years ago, and we sat down and we talked about developing a workable vision. It's a great conversation. I'm right. I'm drawn back to the scriptural, without a vision, the people perish. And Matt and I kind of dive into why you need a vision, the difference between a mission statement and a vision statement, why you need a vision and the difference between a vision and the vision statement. Uh, We talk about what to do if people are not on board and how to draw them into your vision. It's a great, fun conversation. We we nerd out a little bit about uh, the gift of our dads and sons and the convergence of our own testimonies. Uh, you're going to love today's conversation. So take a listen. Welcome to the EquipCast for the Archdiocese of Omaha. Designed to help leaders to transform their cultures, to embody the pastoral vision, to be one church, encountering Jesus, equipping disciples, and living mercy. All right, everybody. Well, it's a joy for me today to be able to introduce to you Mr. Matt Reggetts. Matt, how are you doing? I am good, Jim. Really good. Glad to be here, too. Yeah. Now, by here, we're actually a little bit remote. We were joking about <laughs> before, we, <laughs> before we hit record, we were joking about some of the, uh, the way that Zoom now alerts you when somebody gets creepy and starts to record something. Uh, but you're you're down in Texas, aren't you? I am. We're, when, I, when I say here, it's good for me to be here and you to be there. But that does not mean I don't wish we were uh, sitting in the same room having this conversation. Of course. I know. At the, at the time of recording, I think we, we only have maybe a 40 to 50 degree difference in temperature at our locations. Well, when it gets cold in Houston, uh, the world shuts down. It actually got below freezing. So all the schools shut down. So everybody listening that's going to make fun of me. Um, just get it out of the way now. Get it out of the way on the front end of the of the podcast. That's hilarious. The, yeah, there are a few people who yeah who I know who are rolling their eyes right now. <laughs> okay, so Matt, tell us a little bit right because everybody's in judgy mode right now. So let's let's <laughs> let's shift real quick. Uh, tell us a little bit about your faith journey. Like when did you first encounter Jesus? You no, know, I love that question, Jim, because it actually. It sounds like I'm, uh, there should be a commercial with music playing in the background right now. It reminds me of my dad because my dad actually introduced me to Jesus. Oh, that's awesome. And there's all kinds of like awesome statistics that show like when your dad carries the water of faith in the family, when he's yeah. the one that kind of sets the tone. Oh, it's yeah. like it's crazy. Yes. It's, it's like crazy. bulletproof. So my dad, and he had a later in life conversion, grew up Catholic and, you know, went to Catholic school, but very uh, scrupulous OCD Mm. um, until he was really just through um, some spiritual experiences, some prayer experiences, some prayer groups, uh, freedom in the sacrament of confession, really found a freeing relationship that allowed him to look at Jesus, not just as his judge, but his friend. And that's what he handed on to me. In high school. Now I was a youth group kid, right? You know, I was a youth group kid, but um, it wasn't until I think I had some really in-depth conversations with my dad about relationships that I was in or struggles I was in. He was the one I would turn to. Mm. And I saw, he shared with me his own faith struggle. And when he shared when he struggled and how Jesus came to him, and don't we, Jim, don't we talk about like the power of story and the power of like sharing our story of faith? I mean, it's just so profound. And for you to start with that, like, Matt, how did you come to faith? It made me reflect on what my dad gave me. And my dad struggled a lot with health uh, concerns throughout his life. He's still here, praise God, but he is, he's still struggling with health concerns. 
And then I went off to college, uh, being a youth group kid, I, I lived a little compartmentalized life, right? Like I was this kid on Sundays and Wednesdays and this kid on Fridays. Yeah, and you're, I don't know you're, the only, no, you're the only one, by the way. I've never heard that. <laughs> no one out there relates to that. Yeah, no one out there relates to that. Um, and I went off to college and my freshman year, I lived with a Mormon friend of mine in the dorm room. And it was a fantastic experience. He was a very good friend. We became as close as brothers living together. The way we encouraged each other, held each yes. other up. I saw him get down on his knees beside his bed every night and pray. Oh, that's so um, awesome. I saw him going to church on Sunday. I saw him, you know, at parties in college, like refraining from from certain activities, whatever those activities would be at the time. It was actually not one of those like, oh, did y'all debate every day about transubstantiation and the no, Book of yeah. Mormon? No, we didn't. Yeah. Um, we did have conversations, but it was really how we encouraged each other. That's awesome. He went on his mission, went off to... Uh, Brazil on a mission trip. And I found some other friends, some other really strong Christian friends and started going to like different Bible studies with them. I didn't do a lot of that growing up in high school, but um, I really started to fall in love the spiritual life. Like what mm -hmm. was happening to me when I was in community sharing the scriptures, what was happening when I was praying out loud or spontaneously praying, or um, when I would sing worship music or dive into the scriptures and it really, I came at a crossroads my junior year in high school and college, which was, I'd be still going to, to, to mass every Sunday, but I went to St. Mary's in college station at night one night and it was in the church and it was dark and I could see down the center aisle, the tabernacle and no one was in there. And I just sat down in front of the tabernacle in the main aisle. And I said, Jesus, where should I be? Where should I go? Cause I was feeling this call. Like, is the Catholic church, is it for me? Mm -hmm. And I just felt like this presence there at the time. And it was almost like the reminder when you were looking for me, Matt, where did you come? You came here to the church in front of the tabernacle. So if you leave, the sacramental life is always going to be here, even if you're not. But it was a conviction that these friends of other faiths had challenged you in my faith and formed me in my faith. Yeah. And then I was able to live it out in a full way in the Catholic church. And I say, that's where it all kind of came together. Uh, I think for one of the first times in my life, Matt, I'm I'm loving this because you're. I mean, as you're talking, telling the story of your dad and your your years in college, I'm reminded. I have a freshman in college now. He's having a similar, not exactly preacher's kid, but missionary kid. It's pretty, That's right. pretty, pretty close. You know, he grew up when I was serving as a college missionary. And he now has these awesome evangelical friends, a great Mormon friend who's just about to head on his mission. It's their example and their faith. And yes, their questions that are like, he's growing by leaps yeah. and bounds. And it's been, it's been so fun as a dad to watch, you know, like first time I said, first he started to send me these questions like, dad, what's again, the, what's the difference between an evangelical and a Protestant? It was like, well, the Protestants church looks like ours from the outside, but inside they don't necessarily believe the same things anymore. Evangelical church is probably in a strip mall, but those guys are probably like doing a daily quiet time and sharing their faith. Yes. He's like, yeah, and it's just like, yeah, you know, all of a sudden, it, oh yeah, and how do we talk about Mary again? And it's just been so fun to watch the growth that he has experienced for these, these beautiful ecumenical friendships. Yeah. I can't even imagine now being, I am a dad, but being a dad of a college student, I will be in a couple of years to It'll, I think this is going to come home to, to roost for me in a different way as it like full circles for me. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I, I have to just like nerd out a moment. You referenced, you know, like the sociological data shows how crazy impactful it is when children see their father 
really devoutly leading and practicing the faith. But you mentioned, I don't I wish I could cite this study. I don't know where it is. So if any nerdy listener wants to find it and send it to me, but there's a more recent study that says, and actually the real difference maker that takes things even another notch is when parents have spiritual conversations with their kids. Mm. And, and to me, that's a real difference maker between the faithful stoic dad who lives faithfully and dutifully and the dad who like your dad talked about his faith. Oh yeah. Here's my weakness. Here's my need. And here's how today the Lord came to me in my need. Mm. Like that really is the almost like bulletproof guarantee. Mm. And sadly, right. For the parents who are listening, they're like, Ooh, that'll be hard. Yes. Cause in, in so many places and times and family cultures, praise God, if we're living it, but talking about our daily encounters and experience with the Lord, having spiritual conversations, sometimes that's hard, but it is so worth it. Mm-hmm. And I love the story. Like your dad just did it. I never even thought about it that way too. It wasn't just his example or he took me to mass. Yeah. It was he, we had, we had spiritual conversations together. Yeah. That is so, that's so good. Okay, Matt, what do you do for a living? What do you... <laughs> Hmm. <laughs> tell us about your tell us about your day job. You know, we're we're going to talk a lot about just finding a real workable vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for ministry leaders, parishes, particular ministries, DREs, youth ministers, whatever. But just like give people a little bit of context. Like, what's your day job? Yes. Um, so I went off to college to be an oil field salesman because when you live in Houston and uh, you go to College Station, you do oil field things, right? So yeah, I was an oil field salesman. Um, came home from college and still helped out in my youth group because I'd had this profound experience in college of faith. Mm. And I really was trying to now hand that on on to young people. And so I moved home for a couple of years and was just ministering at the church. I felt this call to ministry, but more in a way to support the youth minister. And I ended up as the youth minister at the parish. (laughs) You know, I wanted my cake to eat it too. Like, you know, they don't, the church isn't known for uh, paying youth ministers very handsomely. So um, my oil field sales job paid much better. Yeah. So (laughs) I I went to work actually at my home parish as the youth minister. And I thought it was just going to be a short-lived gig to get things going again. And it lasted 20 years. Wow. I was a youth minister at a very large parish in Houston for 20 years. I was on the leadership team. And then uh, we started to do some very amazing things at our church. Uh, and we got involved with a ministry called Divine Renovation. Mm-hmm. Um, they were kind of helping parishes in their renewal efforts, like walking alongside, helping ask some good questions and speak into their current realities and get people moving and thinking about different things and prioritizing different things. And so it was a great experience for us. And then they invited me just to coach a couple parishes. Mm-hmm. So I was doing that while I was working on the leadership team at my parish. And then uh, during kind of a transition at our parish with a new pastor and some some new uh, different kinds of vision that that weren't aligned with where I thought we were going to go before. No one's ever experienced that either, by the way. It's, this is, right. No, I'm the no. only one. I'm the only one. Certainly no one listening. No, that's right. No one listening, at least. I stepped into full-time ministry with Divine Renovation. So I now work out of my house. I still live in Houston. I still attend the same church. My kids are going through the youth group and I coach pastors and uh, work with dioceses like Omaha all over the world now. Yeah, that's awesome. That's how I think we, you know, we, we, had, that's how we met and we had had some, some conversations again, very similarly, the, the Lord has been very good to us here in the Archdiocese of Omaha, where he has mm-hmm. given us uh, right, a vision. Uh, he's given us uh, a clear kind of tangible expression of that and uh, what we call the big goal. 
right? That are, that our parishes mm-hmm. would become missional communities. You've seen so much in your time now. Talk a little bit about the role that like a workable vision can have in helping parishes rediscover their missionary identity. Yeah, you know, this was in vogue for a couple decades, and I'm sure it's still a thing, right? There's still consultants uh, that are helping all kinds of businesses to write their ships or get clear around what they stand for. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times we just think if we hire a consultant to come in, by the way, I'm not a consultant, even though, you know, the lines might be a little blurry sometimes, that we hire a consultant to come in and help us come up with this really pithy statement And we put it on the back of our annual report or on the wall in the lobby of our church that, man, now we've got a vision. Yes. Yeah. Because we've stated it, right? Yeah. It's in the bulletin somewhere. It's in the the bulletin. (laughs) And then you ask anybody that works at the parish, including the pastor, what's your vision statement? And they're like, "Uh, it's in the bulletin, right? They point you to the bulletin. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I don't know that that helps to move the needle. So when you say workable, it's interesting because I like that qualifier. I've never used it before, but by the way, I'm going to steal it because workable to me means it's doing something. It's doing work. Yes. Right. Like it's, it's tangible and everybody knows it and it keeps us aligned. Yes. But we know that's not the case. And if you're not united in a vision, it's division, right? The the word division means not united. And I would say division. Yeah, multiple visions is division. And I would say that that probably characterizes most of our experiences in church leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not your current reality, and I pray not, but that's one of the things we have to overcome is how do we make something workable? Mm-hmm. You know, that's the great debate. And I think I would probably say, just to clarify first, that a vision statement is not the vision. Wait, say that, say that again. That's that's really, that's that was subtle, but that's a big deal. It is. The vision statement is not the vision. Okay. Break that out for us. What do you mean? I would say if we just use the word vision, a vision should be broad and inspiring Mm -hmm. and the statement should be short and clarified Mm. and the order matters. You got to start with vision. It's got to be something broad and inspiring. We like to say our definition of vision that we use in our ministry is it's a God-given picture of the future that produces passion. Yeah. So first it's God-given and it's a picture of the future. Mm -hmm. It's where we want to go. This is aspirational. It is not identifying where we are now. A lot of times, you know, we talk about vision and mission statements. Everybody kind of has their different take on that. Right. I would say vision is is the great why and where we're going. And the mission statement is often kind of what or how we're doing. Yeah, that's huge. So I know people could could debate that, but that's just kind of how we use it. Right. Well, but for most people, the two become synonymous and blurry. We end up not having anything. I mean, you're talking about God gives in future. And what was that last line about passion? Produces passion. Produces passion. Yeah. That's what's missing, right? Yes. That's why, that's why yes. like, so tell us, tell us what's your vision? We're like, oh, I don't know. It's on the bulletin somewhere. Yes. Like, so nobody's passionate about it. A lot of times my colleagues and I uh, here, as we're helping individual ministries or individual parishes, groups, teams develop a vision. When we talk about that passion element, we're like, just so you know, for a while, it's okay to swear as you talk about your vision. And it's actually okay if it starts negative, mm-hmm. right? I mean, one of my favorite stories about the Divine Renovation Network and Father Mallon, you know, that their their vision statement started with, with damn it, we're just not going to be a dying church anymore. <laughs> and, you know, after a while, I think they refined it quite a bit yeah, before, yeah, right. before it showed up on the bulletin, right? Before they got really big, big letters to put on the you know, on the, uh, the wall, but there was passion 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a two pronged starting point, really. So people are like, where do I start? Here's where you don't start. Okay. Don't gather a people in the room with a blank pad of paper and say, write out a vision statement. Yeah. That's, that's the pitfall. That's like, you know, you're going to get like group think you're going to get vanilla where everybody's like, you know what? I can live with that. I don't <laughs> want it to be something everybody can live with. I want it to be something they can't live without. Right. Oh, that's good. So, so here's, here's kind of the stop starting point. Everybody knows what gets you out of bed in the morning. That's what gets mm-hmm. you excited and what you, what you love. And that's your passion. Mm-hmm. Everyone also knows what keeps them up at night. Mm-hmm. And that's the discontent or the, we're not there yet. Right. So if you have this passion for where you want to go and that gets you out of bed in the morning, and you have this discontent that you're not there yet. And that's what keeps you up at night. Mm. That terrible combination of lack of sleep, you know, is your vision, right? <laughs> that's where we get the vision is. So vision's going to keep you up at night and it's going to also get you up in the morning. Yeah. If it doesn't feel like that, when you write it out, then we need to change that a little bit. Why do people so often short circuit this process of developing mm. a vision? Because having a Again, eventually a statement. I love the way you distinguish between a statement and a vision. But having a vision, something that that speaks to what keeps us up at night, what we have to change, and and this dream of where we want to go in the future, that sounds exciting. But I just have to be honest, that's not most people's experience of visions and vision statements. So like, why do we short circuit the the process so often? I think you said like, that's not our experience of vision. Mm. So If number one, it's never been your experience and no one's ever shown you what's possible or you've never had the freedom to dream. How many times, Jim, are are people, you know, all of us that have worked in parishes or with parishes, like Mm. a lot of times our role at the parish is the job we do. Yeah. And so if you're just doing your job, like, well, you know, I do my thing. Like, I don't know that the vision's going to change any of that. Like, I'm still going to need to, you know, do confirmation classes. I'm still going to need to do children's liturgy of the word. I'm still going to need to play the music. I'm still going to preach homilies, whatever your role is. How is vision going to change that? But the vision gets everybody pointed in the same direction. And if people have ever had an experience of that, then they can share it. So if we tell people it's possible to go somewhere new and it's possible to love what you do and it's possible to change your current reality from like this, just, I'm just going to be busy because we think busyness means fruitfulness. Yeah. (laughs) And it's too easy to just stay busy in church work. Like we, like Jim and I trying to get this, this time set up together. Like we have to look at our calendars and be like, where do we have an hour spot together? So, but we believe in this so much, right, Jim? Like we prioritize this vision matters for people. And maybe, maybe it's, it's the starting point again. Like, let's go back to the great commission Mm -hmm. in in Matthew 18. Like it's the great commission, meaning Jesus was doing it with them. They were in mission together. It's so funny. Can you imagine what these guys must've thought? Like they'd already seen, you know, come back from the dead and all that. Like, you know, in Luke's gospel where he talks about (laughs) feeding him stuff and touching him. Is he a ghost? Is he a human? Yeah. And then he said, then he says, I mean, just picture this. He says, go make disciples of all nations. And these dudes are like, man, I've never left Judea before. Yeah. What do you mean all nations? Yeah. Because we, they didn't have any experience of that before, but Jesus had to open that up for them. He had to like show them how he's like, go teach, go baptize, go proclaim, go heal, go raise the dead. All of these things that he showed them how to do. But see, as Catholics, Mm. we've even taken that great commission. And I think subconsciously, we either wish it said or believe it actually said, or Jesus actually meant go be disciples. Say that again, because that's <laughs> that's huge, because sometimes we wish that the commission 
was just be faithful Mm -hmm. and that the fruitful part wasn't included or just be a disciple, but not a missionary disciple. Right. It's like, we are called not to be disciples. That's almost assumed, right? Like the assumption came before the great commission. The great assumption came before the great commission, which was go be a disciple. Mm -hmm. Then he says, go make disciples. Can you imagine if the apostles said, Hey, we're just supposed to be disciples. Let's go back to the upper room. Let's start a Bible study and write the catechism. And then that's our thing. That's what we're going to do. Yeah, gosh. Well, I mean, we do. <laughs> and it does we're really good at that. We're really good at being disciples. It's not what they did, but it is. I mean, right. It's clear. Some of us took the commission and rewrote it to do that. Just like, oh, it's just us. And we're going to, we're going to be faithful. Just us. Yeah. And so maybe, maybe Jim, even buried in that is, do we need to understand what a disciple is? Mm -hmm. Like if we're going to go make them, like if I was going to start a shoe manufacturing company, I need to know what a shoe was and how to make one. Right. But how many of us out there can say, I know what a disciple is and I know how to make one. No, I mean, not many. The the stats are, uh, you know, I mean, right. Sherry Waddell is famous for her informing, you know, forming intentional disciples and Matthew Kelly in his, you know, his book, Four Signs of a Dynamic Catholic. They're like, yeah, I mean, maybe seven, 7% of the, of the folks, you know, would be an intentionally chosen consciously okay, living as a disciple. And then those who would say, oh yeah, I know how to make a disciple. It's like, I mean, I think Matthew Kelly actually did some real legit research and it's like less than 1% that would say, oh yeah, wow. I know how I know how to make a disciple. Yeah. It's very, yeah, very you know, small. And, and I think for a lot of us that are would call ourselves disciples, a lot of the people listening to this call would probably call themselves a disciple. We can't always tell you exactly how it happened. We can tell you some of the things that happened in our lives, Mm -hmm. but like maybe not the exact way to do it or the formula to go make them. Mm -hmm. Or the other thing is we know how it happened and we assume that everybody's going to be made into a disciple the same way we were. Right. Everybody has to go on the same retreat I went on or that, yeah, which God bless. Sometimes that works. Sometimes that's, a, but sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Sometimes that's not. This, you know, your your neighbor or your friends or your siblings uh, route to God. Yeah, that's right. Well, one step we took at our church, Jim, is in our leadership team, we came up with a vision and it started with our pastor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wanted him to dream. Yeah. And so if you want a starting point, like encourage your pastor to just go dream, like sit in front of the blessed sacrament or go out to his favorite spot or take a day off and just write the picture of the future that he wishes your parish could look like. Like, yeah, I dream of a parish. I desire to see one day we will. Uh, God is calling us to all of those leading questions yeah. that it, we needed to unlock it from our pastor's heart. We needed to unlock it from his heart. And then after it was unlocked from his heart, we needed him to share it. And so sharing vision is not sharing a vision. I think a lot of times the word a and the is so subtle, but I think Mm -hmm. it's profound for me as a coach. If you say, do you have a vision or do you have the vision? It sounds like it's a thing, like a sentence or a statement. Mm -hmm. But what if it was, hey, do you have vision? Mm -hmm. Can you talk about vision for the parish? Can you talk about vision for the future? And so we wanted our pastor to preach on it regularly. Yeah. And and, you know, a lot of, I've I've had pastors tell me, well, Matt, I've got a lectionary, like that's how I'm going to preach. But I was like, okay, how many Sundays when you're preaching, has there been a gospel read proclaimed? And they're like, um, every Sunday, actually every day. Yeah. And if I said, if you read what Jesus is saying in there, 
he's telling them about this future, about the the hope he has for them. Mm -hmm. Can't we just tie that to the people's lives? Like, here's where we're going as a parish. Here's where Jesus is taking us. And you do it regularly, just cast vision. Casting vision, I picture it like the sower sowing seeds. Just talk about the passion on your heart, what gets you up in the morning, what keeps you up at night. And, and share that discontent and that passion with the people. Yeah. Eventually, Jim, step two, or maybe it's step 15, a vision statement can be born, right? You can give right. birth to the statement that clarifies all of that. Right. But it's not where it starts. It's, it's not where it yeah. starts. It starts big and messy and passionate. Yes. I love that. And it, so if, if a, right, if a pastor or a parish teams or a particular missionaries, if it's rooted in the Great Commission, then... The ability to preach on it, I mean, almost every gospel passage is leading to the Great Commission. You know, Matt, as we were talking about this earlier, I was, you know, feeling a little bit of a of a prophetic call to speak to the leaders who are listening and just in no uncertain terms to say, you must do this. Mm-hmm. You have got to develop a vision. And for many of you, it just means slowing down, shutting off. The podcast, not this one, but like right, <laughs> getting rid of the noise, getting some time alone with the Lord, whether it's in front of the blessed sacrament or whether it's a walk in the woods, but just thinking, okay, Lord, what do you want? And, and just being aware of what really ticks us off, what, mm-hmm. what breaks our hearts, what inspires us. But I want to say both at the same time, as much as you have to do this as a leader, at the same time, I want to reassure those who are like, oh crap, I'm right. I'm not a James Mallon. I'm not like mm-hmm. a dynamic speaker presenter. I'm, I'm maybe not a gifted communicator, that that is okay. I love mm-hmm. the way you said that y- your team your, the leadership team that your pastor had drawn around himself, that you pulled it out of him. And I feel like I can see that, that, that like people, followers, co-laborers can tell if you have a real vision, they kind of look at you and, and maybe you haven't articulated it well, but they kind of look at you and they kind of tilt their head and there's a real curiosity and they say, okay, what do you want? And they know it's in there and they're trying to pull it out. And that is very different from the more passive, like, all right, what are we supposed to do? Yeah. Because people can tell you have to have a vision, but you don't have to be great at articulating it. I mean, at, right away, you can it can come out of you as you start to reflect mm-hmm. on, okay, it sounds like this. It feels like this. It yes. looks like yes. this. And you yes. tell stories and then, okay, then with some people who are gifted at you know synthesizing things, then put it in a simple statement. Yes, it's so but, true. But that and simple the- statement, yeah, it, it's like a symbol, right? Like the symbol of faith that, that a creed is, or even a dogmatic statement. Just a couple of words that says a whole lot. It's true. You know, and I think as you're saying that, what's coming up for me is it's a really blurry line between vision and leadership. Mm, yeah. Because I don't know, you can't separate them into buckets. Like a good leader has vision. Mm-hmm. And, and if that scares some of you, like, gosh, I've never even really sat down and come up with that leadership is not to be done alone. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk a lot about with the pastors now, like shared leadership, like we did with my pastor. Yeah. Like you might be the pastor, the canonical head of the church, and this is not abdicating your leadership, but if you can raise up others around you to make you a better leader, that's what every good leader in the world did, right? They found yeah. people to lead with them alongside them to share the vision. Cause what we say, you know, you said uh, the prophetic word was we have to do this. Yeah. We say it's non-negotiable, right? Like it's step one, the non-negotiable and, and to be on a pastor's team, it's non-negotiable that you're aligned with their vision. Can you debate strategy and tactics and, and how to play that vision out? 
every day, all day. Mm -hmm. Do you need to wrestle every day with what the vision is? Absolutely not. Matt, that's huge. Talk about the difference. Cause I think pastors, again, any leader for that matter, you could be the youth minister and you've got some, you know, parents and maybe, maybe a couple people who volunteer to help, help you pull things together. Talk about the difference between, okay, we have a shared vision versus we have a, a difference in vision and uh, just the, the the safety of a shared vision where you can debate, okay, well, what's the best way to bring this future reality into mm. being versus like, uh oh, we, we've got a real problem here. Like we are not trying to go the same place. H- how do you know the difference as a leader? It's really good. It's really good. And it's profound. And sometimes it can be subtle, but subtle can become toxic. Yeah. So people can sit in the room and just be really quiet and you wonder if they're on board. They don't speak their mind in a room. They go share it with someone else or they just outright do their own thing regardless of what was decided in rooms. So a lot of times that that pinpointing when someone's not aligned is is very hard to do, Mm -hmm. which is why when you get the right people in the room. Um, one of the big things to share that is like vulnerability and trust. Like how, how much do you trust your team? Right. How much do you wrestle with some of the big issues? And when you come up with like, when you have come up with a clarifying vision statement, um, it, it gives you the signpost. And, you know, I think people get a little uncomfortable with, okay, this is the vision and it's not debatable uh, because they maybe don't have vision themselves or they're, it's going to change the way they've done it. Mm-hmm. So really it does take, Checking in with your team, asking them, okay, where are you with this? One of my favorite things to, to tell pastors to do in a meeting, because a lot of times when a pastor speaks, it's like, you know, ex cathedra, right? Like they've spoken, right. right? Right. And the team sits there or they write down their notes and it's like, yes, father. And they go do their thing. Yeah. And sometimes look, I want the pastor to lay down the, like, here's where we are. But if we do that for everything, mm-hmm. we're not letting other people lead and you're not going to find where they're divided. One of my favorite things to ask pastors to do when they, when they make a statement or here's what I think, then you can say, I'm going to assume silence means you disagree. Yes. I love that. And then just sit there and wait for people. Cause now you're going to get the people that disagree to have the freedom to, but you're also going to get the people that like, don't want to think they disagree. So they're going to share anyway. So all of a sudden the whole room starts talking. And and you get some honest feedback. So pastors, leaders, mine for conflict, ask the follow-up questions, check in with people. Because if you head out on a journey and you think you're going one place and other people are trying to go even someplace, just, it's like, oh, it's kind of close by. I mean, you know, Hawaii, Guam, it's pretty much the same. It's like, no, it's actually not the same place. It's right. Yeah. You end up causing uh, real harm. Because people subtly, I mean, but yeah, vision tends to subtly orientate our activities and, or at least the passion that we put into our activities. And if we're not trying to hit the same place, if we don't have the same vision, it eventually shows up. And it's a whole lot better than like, let's talk about this at the start of the journey than halfway through. Mm, yes, that's so true. And the only way to cast vision is to make sure everyone's aligned and supported and communicating regularly because vision leaks, Yeah, right? It's going to leak at a spot and then it doesn't make its way anywhere below that. So if you have a senior leader sitting in a, in a room with a pastor mm-hmm. and doesn't buy in, no one he supports, none of the ministries he's a part of are going to embody that vision. Yeah. That's a scary, that's a scary proposition, right? When we're trying to change culture here. Yeah. That's huge. Okay. So what do you do as a leader? We're like, crap, right? Cause it, where it's like, I've got a vision and I know this is from God and I've begun to share it. And most 
of the key people around me like it. But now I've got this individual who doesn't and they feel irreplaceable. I cannot do without this person. That could be just kind of a fear in an irrational one. It's like, no, actually the Lord has the same Lord who gave you the vision has someone waiting in the wings who can join you in this effort the way this other person had up until this point. But let's say there's this inkling that like, I know they're not really on board with it, but maybe they could be. Mm. How do you authentically draw someone into your vision, especially if you're the leader and you don't want to be manipulative and you don't want to be, you don't want it to be kind of a power trip thing. Like I don't want obedience. I mean, I do, but I want your heart. I want your passion. How do you draw someone in to your vision in an authentic way. There's a lot of secret sauce in that question. Like if we could do that, you know, successfully a blueprint for every person too. I do believe that it comes through the regular support structures that we put in place to help people and to align people. Mm. You know, we hire doers in the church, right? So it's like, I'm going to go do RCIA. I'm going to go do youth ministry. I'm going to go do this. And I'm not Mm -hmm. saying like those things have to be done. But when we hire someone for a job and then kind of thrust them out into the church world, aligning them behind the vision, we don't really know if they're aligned or not. Mm -hmm. So they have to be supported. So like, if you think about a line that tethers everyone to the pastor Mm. from your senior leadership team or whatever you call the pastoral leadership team, do they have other people that they support and meet with regularly? Do, Do they have other people they support with and meet regularly? Everybody should be tethered on through the system. There shouldn't be just a list of volunteers that if you want to be part of this ministry, you just call them and they and they run it like they're little small p pastors of that right of that no role. like little uh, yeah separate tribes no separate tribes everybody has to be connected so that's one thing that helps safeguard it now that doesn't necessarily get everybody on board right. but it does let you know if they're there or not now to get people on board if you think about that rogers innovation curve or that rogers adoption curve some people have seen if not mm-hmm. you can google search that <clears throat> but it talks about how people adopt or come into a belief system. And you've got your early adopters and your innovators on the front end. Yeah. Right. They're the ones that you're like, hey, I got something exciting. They're like, boy, I'm on board. Yeah. And then you've got the early majority like, hey, I've got something exciting. They're like, show me a little success first. Right. Yeah. And then you've got the late majority and you're like, hey, I've got something exciting. They're like, uh, give me two years of data, a flow chart, and uh, <laughs> let me see an imprimatur from the bishop. Yeah. And then you have your laggards and you say, hey, I've got something exciting. And they say, I want no part of it. And I'm writing a letter to the bishop tomorrow. Yeah. (laughs) I pretty much just outlined everyone's church. Totally true. Yeah. So how you deal with each one of those is going to be different depending on where they are. Right. Yeah. The laggards, those that are, there's going to be some that absolutely never buy your vision. Even if Jesus came and preached it on Sunday, they wouldn't buy it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's going to be some that all it takes is an inspiring word. Mm Mm-hmm. And then maybe for others, it's going to take, let me show you a little success first. Let me let you hear some stories of success, of changed lives. It's it's kind of across the board, depending on where they fall on that curve. Yeah. I, I've tried before two things that shared prayer over passages mm. right, of scripture, whether it be the Great Commission or something else, that tend to embody portions of the vision and a sharing of one's testimony, that those two exercises can often reveal, like, again, the word of God starts to get into people's hearts and Mm. and it begins to stir things. And you can start to see where there's a part of the vision that people are drawn. And then you start to hear people's story and you, you can start to see kind of like little places 
where it's accessible. Not that it's foolproof. Oftentimes, what begins as a, maybe a simple articulation or an or a incomplete articulation of the vision gets completed as individuals begin to recognize their own story or the particular passion the Lord has given them. And then the vision can actually become a higher synthesis mm, mm-hmm. and write a really shared, um, but that's hard work. That takes some time to say like, okay, I can see there's something about what I'm saying that's grabbing your attention. And I know I just out of loyalty and trust for me, or just a desire to keep your job, you're giving me a hearing here. I can tell it's not where you're at. So let's, let's let the word of God draw us together. Mm. Let's talk about our stories and, and where, where this dream begins to intersect our stories. And sometimes it leads to an amiable parting of ways. And sometimes you get a higher, deeper synthesis of a vision that now isn't just one person's but it really is a communal shared vision. Mm. It's so beautiful, Jim, just the way, you know, that we can grow as leaders because of our, not, not just our spiritual lives, but our collective spiritual lives. Like what would it look yeah. like if leaders were praying together and, and not the, here's my favorite, the Catholic, my Catholic favorite, let's just say a quick prayer. Yeah. <laughs> How about not like, let's not let it be a quick prayer. Like, let's just never refer to prayer as the quick thing, right? Even if it's a short prayer, let's just not call it a quick prayer. Let's prioritize prayer. Yeah, That's what makes this different than like a business world, secular leadership seminar is the fact that the word of God is spoken and this power of the Holy Spirit moves. Yeah. We've got God on our side. So let's give him a good, like 30 seconds before we move on. Right. Let's get back to being an insurance agency again. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Matt, this is, uh, this is awesome. This has been so much fun. It's gone so fast here. As we kind of close up here, I want to give, give you an opportunity to give just some real practical, like, okay, so I need to develop a vision. And again, we've talked about going for a walk and sit in front of the blessed sacrament. I wonder if maybe you could just return to the distinction between the why versus the what. You mentioned that earlier, and we didn't dive into that, but I I can see that also being helpful as people begin to reflect and ask the question. So can you take us back there for a moment? Sure. I think the what a lot of times is more the the like mission statement language. And again, the, the terms, it depends on how you define them. But a lot of times with a mission statement, we get the we are this and we do that by doing these things. Mm-hmm. It's like who we are and what we do. Right. And I want the vision to point us even beyond that. Like, okay, if this is who we are and what we do, why? Right. So that's where the vision is. You know, that's, that's where vision comes in. Like, I'll give you an example. I had two grandparents that suffered with and died with Alzheimer's. Mm. The vision statement for Alzheimer's was not, we at the Alzheimer's Association um, do this and we do it by fundraising and research and uh, medical advancement. That's like their mission. I didn't say it exactly right, but that's their mission. Do you know what their vision statement is? It's a world without Alzheimer's. Mm. Now, all of us really rational, practical people say, is that even possible? Right. Like, that's going to take a lot. I mean, really? Oh, well, it's going to be possible we're in heaven, but not a world without Alzheimer's. Maybe heaven without Alzheimer's, but a world without Alzheimer's? What do you think those apostles felt like when Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations? Mm -hmm. What? That's not possible. Can we dream big enough without our rational, skeptical minds getting in the way? Mm -hmm. I want to turn people loose to just dream. And if you need to be in front of the the Lord himself in the tabernacle and just say, Lord, I want you to light my heart on fire. I want you to show me maybe what's aspirationally possible or what would be possible if you showed up at my church. And I want to work toward that Mm -hmm. and start with that. 
And then like, Lord, what are the things that are driving me crazy about this place right now? Mm -hmm. It's so funny. I do this exercise with pastors. What do you love about your parish? What drives you crazy? I was coaching a pastor for the first time and I asked him those questions and I said, what do you love about the parish? He's like, well, this and this, and oh my, oh, this, oh gosh, this. It's like, I just cranked him up and turned him on. And he shared mm -hmm. his heart with me. Like, wow, he, why he loved being a pastor at this place. Mm. And I asked him, have you ever shared any of that with your people? Well, no, I would, where would I know? I mean, how would I, why would I do, where would I do that? Like in a homily? I'm like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great, Matt. And then I said, tell me what you hate. Uh, well, not hate. That's a little strong. Tell me what drives you crazy about this place. Mm -hmm. And he literally, he looks at me and goes, mm, gosh, I don't know. I don't know if there's anything that drives me crazy. And I was like, then why are we here? Like if you've arrived, then why are we here? Yeah. But it was a trust issue, Jim, because I've been coaching him now for a year and he tells me plenty of things that drive him crazy. <laughs> Because yeah. those are the things that keep him up at night and he's working through them. So, so to understand what he loves about the parish, lay leaders too. What drives you crazy? Lay leaders too. And then start to pray together as a team. What is our vision for the future? What's this place need to look like? That's, that is super simple. All right, everybody, do you hear it? That's your, that's your homework. What do I love and what drives me crazy? And write it down <laughs> and bring it together and... <laughs> Pray with a great commission. Amen. Let the Lord bring those things together and give you a vision. Matt, thank you. We we talked a, a little bit, you know, divine renovation has been such an inspiration to so many. Um, talk about right fruit, like, you know, show me, show it to me. Hmm. Um, so many parishes and communities that have been blessed. Uh, for people who want to find out more about divine renovation, so many beautiful resources and, and encouragement and more little nuggets of wisdom like this, where can people go if they want to find out more? Yeah, you know, it all started, it was a, an experience Father James Mallon, our founder, had at a parish. So this was mm -hmm. birthed out of a parish. Right. This wasn't theory. This is not an academic did not come from the university, <laughs> came from it a parish not. pastor. It did. So it's like one of our values as a ministry is from the trenches. Oh, I love so that. So we want this to be what we're experiencing on the ground in a parish. Every one of us that works for Divine Renovation has an experience of working in parish and parish ministry, diocesan ministry, uh, and trying to do renewal. And that was Father James. Like he realized there's things I want to do and things I've never been able to do. And he just, so he tried him at a parish and mm -hmm. he was starting to see this great fruit. So he wrote a book, right? Yeah. Uh, Divine Renovation. So that's one resource I would say is just people read the book about the reflection about what's possible by a pastor in a little beautiful town in Canada called Nova Scotia. Uh, wrote. And then what happened was people started to read the book and were like, this is awesome. And they, they're like, okay, we got to, you know, people can't just keep calling the parish. Let's have a conference. And so everybody came to Nova Scotia for a conference. Yeah. Um, and then they're like, well, that's not enough. People go home after a conference and still need more, right? The accompaniment. And we started a coaching ministry. So we accompany pastors um, at all stages of this renewal. There's some we've been coaching for six years. Mm. There's a, a pastor I start coaching next week. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's books like the divine renovation, the original one from maintenance to mission. He wrote another one that kind of has a diocesan angle to it, which I'm sure you're familiar with too, the beyond mm -hmm. the parish book. Yes. And if anybody's looking to join a conference this summer, cause maybe you're not a reader or you want to read and come to a conference, we're doing a divine renovation USA conference in July 
uh, where we'll have other practitioners uh, and diocesan support there to show us what's possible by what they're actually doing in the trenches. Um, and they can find us on the web, of course, uh, if they want to find out more about how to get plugged in with us. But I think the best way they get plugged in is just staying close to the Diocese of Omaha, uh, because you guys are doing so many great things. We love partnering with you and we love just seeing what your coaches in Omaha are able to do about bringing renewal and what's possible with your pastors. Oh, thank you, Matt. Thank you, Matt. We've been so blessed by uh, Divine Renovation in general, but your work in particular. So thank you. Well, it's my honor and my pleasure. Thank you. All right, everybody. If you've enjoyed this, hit pause. Like, you know how to do this, but like, just send this out to somebody who you know needs to develop a real workable vision. Uh, again, Matt, thank you for being with us. God, God's blessing and God speed you on uh, on your uh, your service to the church. Thanks, Jim. Thanks. Same, same to you. Thank you.